due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12 or those of a sensitive nature should turn off now. Hi and welcome to the Murder Tales podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and in each episode, I'm joined by the criminal historian and creator of the Murder Tales series of books, H.N. Lloyd, or as we know, Lloydy. Hello. Also, we we gave you a, a special episode a couple of weeks ago as a bit of a, a taster of of things to come. We didn't stick to just one case. So we'll be looking at themes instead of one particular killer. So it might be uh, patricide, people who murder their parents, or it might be granny killers, or people who murder older people. Uh, It might be people who have used positions of power to kill. Prostitute killers might be one that we could focus on. So we'll be looking at cases that have links and similarities that we can compare. So we'll be looking at multiple killers in a single episode. That's not to say that we won't be focusing on episodes like we've got coming up over the next few weeks. We'll be just be looking at one single killer. And this is quite an interesting story because this is one of Britain's most famous serial killers. Infamous serial killers. And in that case, why don't you take it away? Well, this is actually one of my favourite murders if I can put it like that. It's a a case from what's termed the golden age of British murder. So when you had cases that really did grip the public imagination, where you had trials that brought thousands of people out to watch them, cases that that really did linger in the public consciousness. Also with this case, you have a very tenuous link to my favourite TV show, Doctor Who, and my favourite movie series, Star Wars, which we'll get onto later. Star Wars? Yes. There's an extremely, extremely tenuous link to the Star Wars films by this murder case. Yeah, okay. Is that going to be in this episode or next? We'll find out. So to basically to basically introduce this particular story, it's well known as the Acid Bath Murders. Yes, the, the Acid Bath Murders. And the reason why it's called that is because of the rather gruesome way that John George Haig disposed of his victims. So let's start off. Who was John George Haig? Well, John George Haig was a middle-aged man who'd grown up in Lincolnshire in England. He was born in 1909. He came from a very well-to-do middle-class family. But his childhood was marked by the fact that his family were from the Plymouth Brethren. So at the time, the Plymouth Brethren were a very conservative Protestant sect. It's evolved now, so they aren't as uh, strict as they once were. But at the time, at the early part of the 20th century, they were almost puritanical in their beliefs in that they didn't believe in music, they didn't believe in dancing, they didn't believe in giving presents, they didn't believe in Christmas. It was almost as if they didn't believe in in enjoying life, as it were. And John George Haig grew up in this very stultifying, strict atmosphere that was very much putting fear of religion into him. And 
very strict punishments for breaching the very strict religious dogmas that were being instilled in him. And this led to him having uh, nightmares and where he had religious imagery. In fact, he, he was, as a, as a child, he was said to be quite, quite scarred by his, his upbringing. He was a very intelligent child. He got a scholarship to the Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, which it's quite a prestigious grammar school in, in Wakefield in the north of England. And whilst at school, he was a choir boy. However, whilst he was at school, he began to develop a naughty streak. He quickly learned that he had a proficiency for forgery. So he could forge people's signatures and he went about doing this, forging his parents' signatures on letters, his friends' parents' signatures on letters, even forging uh, teachers' signatures. And then when he left school, everyone expected Haig to go on to a white collar job, but he didn't. He actually became a blue collar worker working for a firm of motor engineers. That didn't last long. Haig was always the type of man who found hard work too bothersome. And he drifted into insurance and advertising. However, he was sacked after a couple of years when he was suspected of stealing money from the firm. And right in saying he was, during his upbringing, he was the only child. And the fact that his parents were able to conceive made him out as being a special gift in a way. So we end up developing this overwhelming sense of entitlement, which meant that when he started working in these positions, that it, it wasn't just a case that he found it bothersome. He just felt as though it was beneath him. Yeah, so that sense of self-entitlement also led to him realising that the punishment wasn't always as bad as he was expecting. So for a, a lad who's always been brought up to believe that, you know, if he did something wrong, God will punish him. When he started to realize, well, actually, God isn't punishing me for this and that he could get away with stuff. And there being, you know, maybe a bit of physical punishment, a uh, caning uh, or, or, or a, you know, the slipper off his dad. Beyond that, there wasn't any wider you know, universal cataclysm that he'd been expecting, that pushed young Haig into naughty and naughtier behaviours, which he then brought that into his working life, which led to the theft of the cash box for which he was ultimately sacked for. And then moving on from there, forging car documents. So effectively, he would sell imaginary cars to people and then do a run with the money. So you you said he didn't want to do an honest day's work, but also he wanted the rewards that you'd receive from working hard. Yeah, he wanted to cut corners and become rich easily and quickly. And one of the very, very early crimes he committed, which led him onto the path to murder, what Haig did is he set himself up in some shops and he said that he was a solicitor. And he gave himself the wonderful name, Mr. Cato. And via these solicitor shops, he started to sell non-existent shares. He was getting away with it for quite some time. People were giving him checks for these non-existent shares. And again, he would 
move from shop to shop. He eventually got caught when one of his prospective victims realized a spelling mistake in an advert that Haig had put out where he spelled Guildford without the D. So Guildford is obviously meant to be spelled G-U-I-L-D-F-O-R-D. And he spelt it without the, the D at the end of Guildford. That led the police to investigate Haig uh, and they realised he'd had this long fraud going on and he ended up getting arrested and being sent to jail for fraud. This sadly coincided with Haig just getting married to a woman called Betty Hamer and Betty was pregnant with Haig's daughter. When Haig gets sent to prison, Betty is absolutely destroyed by this. She thought that she'd married a respectable solicitor she finds out he's nothing but a con man. She files for divorce, which was an extremely rare thing in the 1930s. And she put Haig's daughter up for adoption. Haig's parents say that that is the final straw and they cut all ties. But it's while he's in prison for the fraud that Haig read two books which completely sealed not only his future fate, but the fate of his future victims. So the first book Haig read was a legal book where he read the phrase corpus delecti, which is legal term that simply means body of evidence. The second book that Haig read was on the French serial killer, George Alexander Sarret. And I think that that is a perfect place to have a break. That's not me my line. Let's take a break. And welcome back. Um, right, so you just said before the break uh, about the two books and he read the phrase body of evidence. Do you want to explain what that means? Essentially, in legal terms, corpus delecti means that firstly, the prosecution must be able to prove that a crime has been committed. And it also means that there are certain procedural rules that govern the use of evidence. However, Haig read the term corpus delecti he read that it meant body of evidence and he misinterpreted it to me that if it there wasn't a body in a murder case there was no case to answer and when he's read the second book about disposing of bodies in acid exactly george alexander sarret uh, was a french killer who basically dissolved his victims in sulfuric acid and haig put these two things together And he thought, aha, this is a way I could make money and there'd be no consequences whatsoever because if there's no bodies, they won't ever be able to fit me for the crimes. Whilst in prison, Haig began to experiment. He was able to secure some sulfuric acid from the prison. He was able to secure some sulfuric acid from the prison workshops and he was able to get some dead field mice. And he began to put the bodies of the field mice into sulfuric acid and from there make calculations as to how much he would need to dissolve a human body. This is a big jump to go from a con artist to somebody who's prepared to murder and dispose of bodies for financial gain. Well, all of Haig's crimes had been for financial gain. Sometimes you will find that killers will suddenly go from 
not having committed any crimes whatsoever in their lives to suddenly committing some quite premeditated murders. For a man like Haig, who's quite clearly got mental illness, I, I would quite happily say that he is a psychopath. Those those decisions are easy to make. He simply sees people as a commodity. He simply sees people as an obstacle to having the wealth he thinks he's entitled to. So while he was in prison, obviously he did these experiments until he was released when? He was released in 1943 and immediately he, he starts drifting around London. And he had a chance encounter in a Kensington pub called The Goat, where he met an old friend called William McSwan. Now, he'd previously been a chauffeur for McSwan, and he'd become a bit of a confidant to him. The two men were very similar age. Both had an interest in mechanical engineering. And they met in this pub and they hit it off again. They became firm friends quite quickly again, to the point where Max Swan introduced Haig to his parents, Donald and Amy, and he became a family friend. And the Max Swans trusted Haig enough to become a rent collector for them. They owned six properties in what is now the very fashionable area of Kensington. Now, at the time, it house prices there weren't as expensive as they are now but it was still a nice area and Haig would go around collecting the rents for Don and Amy's properties. So basically he's come out of prison and he's now set himself up so was his plan still in the back of his mind? His plan was always in the back of his mind and to that end he'd rented a basement flat in the Gloucester Road where he began to get the necessary implements he needed to carry out his plan. He set himself up as a, as a company uh, that would legitimately use sulfuric acid. And he started to buy uh, imperial gallon drums of sulfuric acid. So this contains about 180 litres or 48 US gallons. Uh, so they're quite big drums of acid. And he had these taken to the Gloucester Road. So one day in September 1944, so they've been friends now for about a year. Haig says to McSwan, I've got a business idea. I think it would be perfect for you to invest in pinball machines. I've got them in this basement in Gloucester Road. Come and have a look at them and see what you think. And if you think it's a goer, you can invest some money in it. McSwan agrees. He's got no reason to doubt or fear his friend. He goes along to the Gloucester Road. The Haig has set something up. We don't know what he set up, but there was something that got McSwan's interest, something that he was bending over that was distracting him. At which point, Haig crept up behind him, cracked him over the head with a lead pipe. He stripped him of all his valuables, and then he put the body in the barrel of acid. And he left it there for two days. All that was left of McSwan after two days marinating in this acid was fatty sludge. And all Haig had to do was pour this down the drain and there was no evidence of his crime. Now, obviously, McSwan's parents, Donald and Amy, were wondering what had happened to the son. Haig had some diabolical look on his side here. The Second World War was raging and... Haig simply said, McSwan has done a runner to avoid being called up. He's hiding out in Scotland. 
Haig then waited for nearly a year until July 1945, where he went to Donald and Amy again and he said, McSwan is back in London and he wants to see her. He obviously can't do it openly because he's still on the run after refusing to be called up. So call round to the Gloucester Road and he'll see her. So the McSwans happily agreed quite joyously to go and see their son. First of all, Donald went down and again, Haig cracked him over the head with the lead pipe, stripped him of his valuables, put him in a barrel of acid. An hour or two later, Amy McSwan went down. Haig repeated the same grim proceedings. But he went even further this time. Not only did he take the valuables that were on the body, he stole the pension checks. He sold the properties that the McSwans owned and he st- sold all of their belongings from the houses and he pocketed all of the money. That was around £8,000. Doesn't sound like a lot now, £8,000, but back then, £8,000 would have the equivalent spending value of around a, a quarter of a million pounds, so £250,000. And with this money, John George Haig took himself off and set himself up as a permanent resident in a rather swanky Kensington hotel called the Onslow Court Hotel. Just before we move on to that, the popular image of John George Haig is of a man wearing a leather apron and a World War II gas mask, which is lends itself to kind of the horror movie image of a mask. Why was that? Yeah. Well, the reason why uh, Haig dressed up in such a kind of slasher horror movie way was because the first time he committed the murders, he realised there were a lot more bloody and a lot more dangerous than he first thought. So he uh, had to cut up the bodies to fit them into the acid, uh, which obviously was a very bloody process. And then he he didn't realise that he would become overpowered by the acid fumes. So as the body dissolved in the acid, it created a lot of noxious gases and they almost overpowered him and he almost became uh, a victim of his own bloody devices. So from that moment, whenever he killed someone, he would uh, put on a gas mask and a big apron so that he wouldn't get blood on himself. These were readily available. People were having to buy gas masks and carry them around because of the threat of poison gas during World War Two. Exactly, yes. Uh, outside of, of his murders, when he wasn't committing his murders, Heath was what I like to term a bounder killer. And there's many examples of, of the bounder style killer. So that is somebody who's very suave, very sophisticated, who uses his charm to win his victims' confidence. So we have killers like uh, Neville Cleveley Heath, who was an RAF pilot who became a sex killer, or Lord Lucan, uh, could be termed to have been a bounder type character. So he was a very charming man. We're um, talking about an image very similar to characters which would be involved in, say, an Ealing comedy. An Ealing comedy or the Bertie Wooster books by P.G. Woodhouse. 
whilst Haig was living at the Onslow Court Hotel, he started spending money hand over fist. He began to live this very expensive lifestyle, going to expensive restaurants, expensive clubs, buying expensive clothing, driving around in a little two-seater sports car, living the life of Riley, burning through the money like there was no tomorrow. On top of that, he had to pay quite an expensive bill to live at the Onslow Court Hotel. Now, the Onslow Court Hotel was the type of hotel that kind of discouraged people from just staying there for one or two nights. Back in the day, certain hotels had permanent residence. So people who lived there all the time. It was mainly older, rich people who lived this sort of lifestyle. So when they were maybe getting to the age where they didn't want uh, the responsibility to be cooking their own meals and looking after themselves all the time, they would just go and they'd find they'd find a, a room in a nice, expensive hotel and they'd live the last few days there. These hotels had things in place so that if a resident died in the night, the body could be removed quietly without anyone knowing it was like a, a very upper class care home, if you will. And into this den of old ladies, John George Haig moved like a shark. And he began looking at the old people in the home, trying to find another victim. And that's where we get to the tenuous link to Doctor Who in Star Wars. Because... One of the old ladies who lived at the Onslow Court Hotel was an older lady called Mrs. Franklin. And John George Haig started to eye her up as a potential victim. He began to wine her and dine her and take her out for dinner. Now, he didn't, in the end, have the opportunity to kill Mrs. Franklin, but her nephew went on to become the actor Richard Franklin, who starred as one of the main characters in, of Doctor Who in the 1970s. He played the character of Captain Mike Yates uh, in the uh, what they call the Unit family, uh, alongside John Pertwee. In fact, he was one of the first characters to have what you might call a story arc whereby in one of the serials he actually betrayed the doctor and unit and got fired from his position and in, over the next few stories he was given an arc of redemption whereby you know he was able to rebuild the trust the doctor had in him and kind of uh, win back a position of, of trust and love within the unit family so it was quite an important part in doctor who and then off the back of that, a few years ago, the Star Wars film Rogue One, uh, the director of that obviously was a big Doctor Who fan. And as a, a kind of a nod and a wink to Doctor Who fans and as an appreciation to Richard Franklin, he gave Richard Franklin a kind of very brief cameo in Rogue One. That's a story's tenuous link to Doctor Who and Star Wars. And... Is that a cliffhanger? <laughs> is that, that is that is this week's cliffhanger. I'm sorry, people, if you wanted something a little bit more uh, exciting there, but that's that's it. That's the cliffhanger of episode one. Fair enough. We'll leave it there. Um, Lodi, thank you very much for that. So if you have any questions, concerns or any feedback, 
please get in contact with us by going to at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact with Lloydie directly by going to HN Lloyd One. And those of you who follow the podcast know that our episodes are released every other Tuesday. So we'll be coming back. We'll be following up this episode in two weeks' time where we find out who John George Haig's next three victims are. So for now, all that leaves me to say is I've been Chris Britton and he's been HN Lloyd. Even and all. If you enjoyed the show please go onto itunes and leave us a lovely five-star review and even better click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts the murder tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by hn lloyd if you'd like to get your hands onto them you can click on the amazon link on our twitter page this show was presented edited and produced by chris Britton, who's created written and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.